and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm delighted today to be able to welcome from the International Film Festival of Rotterdam, the director of one of my favorite films of 2021 so far, Dea Kulumbagashvili. She is a Georgian director who has directed the film Beginning, which is still available to stream on MUBI, that's M-U-B-I, the streaming service that you can subscribe to. It is an astonishing film and one that I am delighted to be able to talk with her about. We go pretty in-depth about the film, but no worries, I will try to guide you through it as best I possibly can. So out of the hundreds of films I've already watched for various film festivals this year so far, Beginning is my absolute favorite, and there's a reason for that. This film is very complex. It deals with a woman named Yana who lives in a small border town in Georgia. She's a part of a Jehovah's Witness community that is attacked by extremists. In the midst of this conflict, her life slowly crumbles and her inner discontent grows as she struggles to make sense of her desires. To say that this all comes to a violent conclusion, it's a, it's a film about violence and tension as much as it is about the inner life of the character. And it is beautifully done and I could not be more excited to talk about this film. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Your film confronts social justice issues, including sexual assault, misogyny, the marginalization of communities. And I'm so pleased to speak with you as your film really spoke to me especially in these beautiful passages of this intense stillness that develops an interesting relationship between the viewer and the characters. And it's this disquieting stillness, especially creating a relationship between the protagonist played by Ia Sukhitashvili and your audience that I'm fascinated by this relationship that the camera really evokes. And I wondered, what kind of direction did you give to her in these long, still moments? Well, we we started to work with her uh, much earlier than we started to shoot because I wanted to really workshop the script with actors. So I would just go to the room with them. I was, in a way, rewriting the script in this process for specifically these actors. And then... We were doing so many rehearsals because I really wanted to see how they inhibit or start to inhibit the characters. And only after that, when I understood how they function as these characters, I started to really envision how I would do the staging of each scene. And then on set, it was very like minimal and precise in a way. I would just tell, and I would very often just count for her also. And that was a bit strange because I always sit uh, or stand next to the camera. I don't like to have a monitor on my set because I want to be where the camera is and to look with my eyes what's happening in front of me. And if I have an emotional connection, if I feel something, then I know that I have a, I, I have a shot. If I don't, I, I don't expect that I can 
save anything later on. I would really count for Ia. Many times it would be just to get her into the rhythm of the scene, how she walks, how are her steps, uh, when does she sit, when does she lean. In, in a way, it was very, very precise kind of work. But then I'm very much open to unexpected as well because it was so rehearsed before we started to shoot that if she would do something differently, I just trusted that that was coming from her instinct as, as an actress being in this character. So I just believed that that's what real precision is, not just telling the actor to do something re- really precisely, but to really bring them to the condition or to the space which allows for that kind of uh, instinctual acting. And, and that's the real precision, I believe. So it was this nuanced, but I, I don't know if it, it, to me, it seems easy. And uh, <laughs> I promise you, it's not. <laughs> yes, it was just, um, but, you know, they were so, so devoted to the process, like all of them. Mm-hmm. For example, Ia, she stayed in this town with me for the entire time. She never left on a weekend, on a day off. She was always there. Because once she entered the space of the character, she did not want to have anything interrupt the process for her. Just she was constantly in, in this in this process. And I really value how she... She has a great experience. She, she has so much experience. I don't have that much experience. She's a very famous actress in Georgia. But being that experienced, she's able to really forget about everything and trust you fully as a director. And that I consider the real professionalism, by the way, because she did not bring any of her knowledge with her. She was fully in the space I would create for her. That's a marvelous trait to have in a collaborator. And it sounds like she was wonderful. And the rhythm that you created just by counting out for her in that way maybe even accounts for why your collaboration on the sound and these these sonic textures was so resonant too. Do you think there's a relationship between the specific rhythms you were creating in terms of the shooting of the sequences as well as the work that Nicolas Diar was putting in on the soundtrack? Yes. I, I want to mention that I had really incredible sound team. Nico, like Nicolas Jar. And uh, sound designer, Céline uh, Favrio, I cannot pronounce his name, by the way. It's very French. And Stéphane um, Thiebaud. And also the, this Mexican sound or the dialogue editor, Christian Girard. And they were all incredible. I Because like, I, I was working, for example, on editing the dialogue. I, re- I re-recorded it twice, almost, the entire dialogue in the film. Because I really wanted to listen to the specific uh, tone, to hear specific notes, and to really bring the audience into almost like a meditative state through the dialogue or how the words are said. And sometimes on set, that was really not possible to achieve. So I re-recorded all of that while doing post-production. I went back to Georgia to re-record. And then for steps, for example, I, they, they, they were making fun of me that, I was making a film of footsteps. <laughs> I was so obsessed, like really. I would say that, no, it should be nine and a half footstep hard here. And then after the third footstep, it starts to decline. And then on six footstep, we hear it in the right corner. And they would be like, well, what are you doing, really? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's also how 
in a way I relate to the world. I never knew if I have good hearing in a way because I do hear specific things only. Mm. And I don't always, and apparently I hear very low frequencies as well, which huh. I was not aware of before I started to work on a film. Because when I would be just talking to them, I would say that, no, no, I want to go down like less, less. They would be like, yeah, but we don't hear. What do you hear now? And I, I would hear it. And sometimes we would bring the cinematographer to, to the room to ask, like to test if he hears anything. And he would say, no, I don't hear anything but I would hear it very precisely. And then we would check in a wavelength and it would be really a sound in that place. Wow. So, so I don't know. I think that we all relate to sound in such an individual way. Mm -hmm. And what we hear is not exactly what's really heard. There is no objective experience of sound. Mm. So at some point I understood that I wanted to create a sonic experience of this woman. It's very specific to how she experiences the world. Because maybe hearing is also the most authentic experience. It's the of experiencing the world. And actually today I was talking to, like last night, actually, I was talking to the cinematographer, to, uh, to Arseni, and uh, we were talking that, you know, in, in dreams, apparently when we sleep, when, when we're asleep, we mostly see what's in front of us. And the rest is just a sensual experience. It just senses. The rest we sense and we think that we saw it. Mm -hmm. If somebody is chasing us in a dream, we never really see that somebody. But we have an image which is in our head, which is created from other sensual experiences and creates the knowledge of yeah. what, what chasing us. So I was like thinking that, okay, how do you do that in cinema? Because what is actually uh, like experience of one specific character? Like, what is that? Like, how do you approach that when, when you're trying to convey it in a film. Yeah. And we, we used to talk about this even before we started to shoot. So I guess like we're returning somehow to this conversation. That's so interesting. Talking about the idea of the perceptual edge in psychology, where that line is. Arsene even had the book, by the way. He had the book of images of how uh, a space or an object is seen or experienced in the dream uh, while we dream, like while we're asleep. Uh, I forgot, like, I, I actually want him to ask him to send me that book. <laughs> Very curious. But I wondered how difficult it was to communicate what you were hearing anyway. I actually had written down a question about how you communicated what you were hearing in the space that you grew up in compared to outsiders who may not hear the same things that you were hearing. I didn't even know about the a whole low frequency question, but did you have difficulties with the whole inviting mm -hmm. other people into that space? Well, yes, but I think making a film, it's a very, very personal process. The most difficult part is to allow everyone else who is involved into this personal process and into your world. And it's a very vulnerable, vulnerable process because of that. But then you need to open up and um, it, otherwise it's just impossible. But then you also work with people who are very sensitive and uh, very intelligent uh, on their own. So it's, it's, it's not just you who open up, but it's also them who allow you into their own world and their experiences. So it's constant like sharing in a way of uh, emotional experiences um like it's not about talking i don't really talk that much with people i work with it's something else it depends like what you say and what other person responds or you can 
see it on the other person's face, what's happening in their mind in that moment as well. So it's a very nuanced. And also everybody is different. Like Nico is a different person and Seva, like Severin is a totally different kind of person. So as a director, like how, how do you work with, with absolutely different people? But you need to also trust that these people also have worked with many people in, in their life and they have their own process. So it's, I don't know, you learn also from these people. I learned a lot from everyone I worked with. I hope that they took something also from working with me. They were really generous, uh, like to me and uh, to the film. But how you share it, I don't know. Like, for example, I was talking with Seva, with the sound designer. First, when we started to talk, he told me that he doesn't like to talk and theorize about sound. He was mm-hmm. honest. He said, I don't like to theorize. Just give me one thing which you think is a starting point, And then from that, we'll start. And we'll, let's see what happens. So I sent him the painting of... Hans Holbein, the younger, it's the painting of the body of the dead Jesus in a tomb. I know the one you mean. Yes. I was thinking about that painting for a long time. First time I read uh, Dostoevsky's uh, Idiot, that's the painting they look at and um, they talk about that painting a lot in the novel. And uh, I, I sent this image to Seva because I was obsessed with this thought of what do you hear if you're inside this tomb? And is what's the point of him being either still alive or not alive anymore or before the resurrection or just resurrected like it's such a thin line between between life and not life being alive and not not alive like something's really really mystical connects me there is something really mysterious and mystic mystical about this painting and also like how much do you hear the outside world and how do you hear it and then in mexico uh, when I was editing the film, just right next to the, uh, this room, editing room, there was the water well and birds would come in the morning and evening to drink water. And I've never seen such incredible variety of birds in my life. And they would just, they were beautiful. I never seen such beauty, really. Like these birds are the most beautiful creatures I ever seen. And of course, like make sounds and like sing. And I was trying to record, but it it was, I could not come close actually. And with my phone, like how much could I really like record from a distance? Mm-hmm. But then I told this to the sound designer and then he started to create from there. For example, for the forest scene when she lays down, the rhythmic, almost like, uh, again, it's like a meditation, that meditative sound that brings you in, but it's sound of the, the birds. I, I just told him, I said that, there are these birds and uh, every time when they come to drink water, I cannot work. I cannot be in the room when I know that these birds are here because I know that I never experienced anything like this before. For some people that sounds stupid and meaningless. And I, I know some people usually tell me, come on, uh, <laughs> you, you, you love to procrastinate. Uh, but for other people, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense to me, too, as the sensory input that you're so sensitive to around you. So that's that's how you, because I knew that I have experienced different kind of uh, listen experience of listening to the birds, but in Georgia and in my hometown and in different forests, and those were different birds, of course, but there was something very familiar sound to me, but at the same time, totally unfamiliar because these were different birds. Once I was talking to Nico on the phone 
and, and you know i really admire this guy like and he was like oh my god there i hear the birds and nobody else has ever like i was talking to many people on the phone when i was me no one ever said that i hear the birds can, can i hear a bit more like is it possible like it, it all depends like what we hear and how who we are as people as well that sensuality though of the sound behind is really because it's more than just sensory input it's mm-hmm. it's how how much it stimulates your creativity your imagination and so forth. yeah it's i think making a film is like really moving between known and unknown because of course i have studied many things and i got degrees and i'm more or less like intelligent person to a certain <laughs> degree but then it's an unknown also when you're making a film and uh how can you really move into that unknown and be sensitive? I think it's just equally important to everything you have planned and what you know about your film. And I love that quality to your film so much. At the same time, there's also this heavy weight to it. (laughs) The heavy political, religious, and institutional weight of power and control over Yana's life and body. And it feels present in every frame. How did you think about this in the filming process, in the editing process? Well, I I was thinking that there is a plot, of course, and then there is a story. But then what does it mean to tell a story? I can as well just sit here and, and tell a story. But then still, like in anybody who would listen to me in their head, it would be a totally different story that I will be telling. But then there are certain things which you create for cinema. But then also you, I, I, I think for me, that's very important to leave the space for the audience, for a viewer, and to create the connections between what we know, what we don't know, a viewer and the character, and perhaps m- myself as well. But I would like to be as l- really the least important part because it needs to be more space for the viewer uh, in the film. I wanted to create the possibility for accumulation of dread. And that does not happen only on one level. It's not just something that happens, but it's also something which is intangible. I And I think about this all a lot. And I have so many thoughts in my head. I really don't know the answers. But I think that the most important decision is where you place the camera. Not what you wrote, what you have rehearsed. Nothing is as important as the decision to place the camera. Because that just transforms everything into something which you cannot really write or rehearse. It's something intangible and and that's cinema. I don't know. It creates a frame Mm. (laughs) and the depth and it creates the unknown and it creates the off-screen space. And all of that is the components of telling the story. How did they think about it? I don't know. It would be very theoretical if I talk about it. Of course, I, I, I was thinking a lot, but still, I do trust my instinct a lot when I'm on set. So I don't know, maybe many producers would not want to work with me because of that. Because when I write a script, for me, it's it's a text and it's a starting point. But then I, I don't care about what I wrote in a way. It's not it's not very important. Then I move into different territory, which which is making a film. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I do believe in making decisions. Like uh, I, that's the demand I have towards myself as a filmmaker to make a decision when I'm on set, not after. Yeah. So in the editing room, your relationship with the editing process Mm -hmm. is very 
you would say like at a remove, you feel beholden to what the material is. You're you're not like Kieslowski cutting the film together as an editor and really feeling you have more control in the editing room. Well, I am present in every second of the editing process because I believe that once you shoot, then in editing, you start to rediscover the film and you start to watch your footage and you're embarrassed and it's painful. And, um, you know, everything you could not achieve in the process. And I think you're the most vulnerable than ever, actually, as a director. But at the same time, it's only one part of the process. And then there is a day when you find, you accept and understand and start to feel the footage. And then it's, from that point on, you have a film in a way. And then it's exciting. And uh, But I, for me, that's the process. I need to overcome that first week of uh, real like uh, horror. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, the first time I watch the footage is almost unbearable because I don't watch it on set. And of course, I'm really discovering it the first week of editing. But then you understand that, okay, now let's make a film, in a way. And, uh, and it's a totally different process. It starts and it's exciting in its own way. And, uh, but I should say that with my film, we made the uh, assembly, which was very long because we put everything we shot. But on the next, the, in one week, I already removed everything which would not be in the film. Really? Yes. It, it's pretty fast for me. But then it's all about the nuances. Okay, I have this scene, but this word... I did not succeed on set. It needed to be said mildly. So let me try this. So it's a lot of uh, nuanced work that starts from there. And we were editing for five months. Uh, no, for we were editing for four months. And it was very nuanced process about what frame do you start from the shot? What, what frame do you get out? Uh, because in the, in the film like this, where there are such long shots, it, it's a different way you work on the rhythm. Mm-hmm. It, it's very nuanced and very specific like okay you hope that you brought the viewer to this like emotional level do you get out or do you want to continue and what happens if you continue and then when do you move to the next shot and film actually it's almost uh, we almost did not rotate any sequences other than two shots were rotated like if they were shot for a different thing like different scene but ended up in a different scene. But the rest is almost maybe a bit too precise in a way. I wouldn't say too precise. <laughs> well, I wouldn't, but I'm I'm a huge fan, so you know, <laughs> I'm a journalist. I'm a fan, and I think it's wonderful. But I I also have this question because you brought up your intent as an auteur, and I know you're a, a huge student of literature and that you have spent a lot of time reading. When it comes to this idea of authorial intent versus audience reception, have you been surprised by any particular sequence in terms of audience reception that's very different from your intent? You don't have to tell me what your intent was, but just if there's a particular scene that's different. I would rather say it's not, I think, I I did expect this, but I was surprised how how many different interpretations seemingly very simple moments in the film actually have. Like that, I did not think that would happen. Because I thought that, oh, okay, this is, I mean, I don't know, this is what it is in a way. But then, no, it has so many different interpretations. Because I, I, I believe that even in literature or in music, we do connect 
with what we read, what we see, what we hear through who we are and what's with our preconceived understanding of the world. And then perhaps maybe a film or, or a novel, maybe it opens up a window into something like gives us a glimpse into something maybe we have not thought or did not experience before, did not feel before. And, and that's already an achievement, I think, because it's, it's a difficult thing to achieve. But to have so many interpretations was, uh, was surprising. Yeah, it was, was surprising for me. It's just a wonderful film that's open to so much and opens so many different viewers' lives in so many different ways. Thank you. I want to thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for your generosity. No, thank you. I, I am very happy that I can see that film is being seen and uh, people connect. It's a very emotional moment for me because, you know, when you finish the film, it's not yours anymore. And then you can only hope that it will find the audience. Well, I'm so glad it's found a home on Mubi so that all Americans can watch it on Mubi now. Thank you very much. Thank you so very much. Have a wonderful festival. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now, and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of lands stolen from the Manahoac people. I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that also reside in Virginia and have made innumerable contributions to our region. I am grateful to work on this land. I acknowledge these facts in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. We will continue making our rounds of the festival circuit with guests from the International Film Festival of Rotterdam. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Podchaser. Doesn't have to be anything fancy, just a simple RTO rocks my socks is good enough. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Omnibus Ride. You can also visit our website omnibusride.com where you can dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch. <laughs>